So I'd like to talk this evening about persistence. I want to start by telling a story that I read. It's a true story. There was a man um, who was born in an area in Utah, and there was a a company in town that was doing copper mining and the um, copper is very poisonous for living things and so the result of the copper mining is is that there was this enormous kind of landscape of wasteland that had been created as a result of the mining and this boy grew up in this area and had this kind of calling feeling he wanted to do something about this. And he tells the story that there was um, another kid who was in the same area. and I don't know, he was talking about his longing to do something about it. And this other kid made a joke, you know, about how ridiculous it was. And, you know, he was just so overcome with emotion that he just flattened him. You know, he just laid him out. So... He grew up and went away to college and studied environmental science. And when he was studying environmental science, he asked his uh, university professors, you know, how long it would take to change the landscape back into something that was lush, green, living, breathing land. And they said 40,000 years. And then he got married had kids and then somehow or another ended up back into this home village of where he had been born and the same feeling he wanted to do something about the land so he went to the company he said I want to do something about the land and can I and they said no it's private property if you come on the property we'll arrest you so he had been told that it was going to take 40,000 years to do anything for this. You know, he'd been told by the property owners that if he did anything, he was going to be arrested. And basically he said he just decided he was going to try. You know, he was just going to try. So he filled his backpack up with acorn kernels, take a shovel and a flashlight or a headlamp, go through the barbed wire fence at night so that nobody could see him and plant the acorn kernels. And, you know, this was going on for months, for years. Nothing would grow. Nothing would grow. Still, he kept planting. He kept planting. He kept planting. He kept planting. Nothing would grow. And then finally, there were a couple of little somethings that started to grow and porcupines came and ate them. He kept planting. And another little cluster of things grew, and there was some kind of a fire, and it burned them. And he just he just fell on the ground, and he just wept. He just wept. He just wept. But he kept planting. He kept planting. 
kept planting. And eventually some things took. And when it took, then it started to change the soil conditions because you had something growing. And as it uh, as the soil conditions started to change, then it held moisture more. And as the moisture held more, then there were streams that started to reappear. So, I mean, this was going on for, I don't know how many years he was planting acorn kernels and various other seeds of trees, and then he got more diverse and started planting other kinds of things, and they started to grow, and eventually animals started to come back. So there were first tiny little rivulets, and then there were wider streams, and then animals started to come back. And eventually the company figured out what was going on, and rather than arrest him, they hired a team of people to help him. So he became the, the leader of a group of people who were whose job was to do this. And so in his own lifetime, by the time his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren were alive, there was a shift that had taken place. The landscape had begun to recover, and there were animals that had come back, there were streams that were flowing, there were eagle and bear had returned to the area. It had become a viable land that was life-sustaining. And he won all kinds of awards and was recognized, you know, far and wide as for his efforts. But for me, the story that I found so moving was he had a calling. And in spite of the fact that the information that he had was is, is that it was going to be impossible for him to see any results and that it was illegal for him to try. He did it anyway. And, you know, he didn't see results quickly. In fact, it took a long, long, long time before he saw any results at all. And then when he did see results, they were, they were, they were eaten or they were burned or they were, something happened. And he kept planting. He kept planting. There was something in him that was absolutely so strong that even though there was nothing that he could sink his teeth into that this was the right thing to be doing or a good thing to be doing or something that he was going to see results for, there was something in him that kept doing it anyway. And so he did not have a map or people patting him on his back or examples of the fact that this could actually work. He had the conviction inside of his heart that this was something that he wanted to do. He wanted to try, and he wanted to try even if it didn't have any effect. He wanted to, he wanted to try. So the conviction was such that he was willing to sustain an effort to keep planting even though there was nothing in his world that was affirming that this was actually going to have any lasting effect. And he did it anyway. And eventually he saw results. Now, we live in a kind of fast food culture where, you know, you drive up and you order the thing and then you finish, you throw away the container and it's like, we don't have a sense of enduring effort. We don't have a sense in our, in our, like in our contemporary postmodern psyche about sustained, persistent effort that we can keep plugging at 
even if we don't see results come really quickly. We don't have models of that around us. So we make a little bit of an effort and we expect it to have a huge result and life is not always like that, you know. And then we feel disappointed, we feel discouraged, we want to give up, and we want to go home, and we don't want to do anything more, it's not fun, we want to go play with somebody else in their sandbox. It's like, you know, don't like it. So I found this story very moving, and, you know, certainly it rubs against the grain of what we would like to have happen. You know, we'd like to have a little bit of effort and a lot of result. But sometimes there's an enormous amount of effort and no result. But for him, he kept plugging away. So there was something in his heart that was motivating him to continue to do it, even though he saw no results. It was what he wanted to do. And he was determined to to continue. And, you know, certainly in our lives, in our practice lives, there's times when we do have insight. And there's times when it's just so little bit, increment, increment, increment. And we think, you know, maybe why should I bother? Or what's the point of this? Or why should I continue to do this? Because we're looking for results. We're looking for a kind of big, huge kind of signposts that say that we've got there, we've done it, we've got the right thing, we're doing the right thing. We understand there's a big, huge release of suffering. There's a big, something huge shifts that's a kind of signal. And for some, that can happen. And for a lot of people, it doesn't. It's just a kind of gradual wearing away of old habits and replacing with new habits. So when I was talking about the Four Noble Truths, I was talking about the the gateway of suffering as a very wide gate. There's an awful lot of people pass through that gate. There's a number of gates, and I can't remember all of them. Sometimes there can be a gate where you can have a direct experience of, you know, um, that you're not separate from the things around you. There can be a a kind of an experience of timelessness where things seem to stand still. There can be an experience of just all-pervasive love that one's part of that, a part of a fabric of love that's, that's, um, that holds oneself and holds everything else together. And there's a gateless gate. And the gateless gate has no particular sign or characteristic to it. There's no particular thing that you get or you see or you know. There's no sign. It's the gateless gate. But the result of the gateless gate is, is that when you pass through that gate, even though there are not like significant um, insights that demark major transformations, there's a gradual wearing away of suffering. There's gradually more joy, more happiness, more contentment, more ease, more lightness of heart, lightness of being. And no one thing that has caused a big, huge shift gradually through making an effort and applying the practice, transformation takes place. And what it is to, to know that there can be an end to suffering, that 
there is an end to suffering, that it actually is a valid path, it's a valid way of practicing, is such an incredible gift in this world. I mean, it's just like virtually everything else that we see around us is kind of supporting the opposite. That the only way to get rid of your suffering issues is if you follow your desire. You know, if you buy the thing, if you get rid of the thing you don't want, if you invest in, in the insurance policy, you know, whatever it is, it's not about something that's innate here. It's about having to get something out there. So to have contact with a teaching that illuminates that we don't have to get anything or get rid of anything. There's the natural radiance of the mind, which is innate. It's always been there. There's, there's no way that we can get away from that. That just it slowly starts to reveal itself more and more and more. So to be able to to know that one applies the path, that that will be the result. And there's no guarantee how long it's going to take. You know, It might be short, it might be middle, it might be long, it might be very long. But that's the result of the path. That's the result of making the effort. That's the result of keeping precepts of of bringing mindfulness into the present moment. That's the result of seeing how one is reacting and responding with compassion rather than reactivity. That is the result of practicing. This is that the natural, luminous nature of the mind eventually begins to reveal itself for what it is. But it takes persistence, you know? It takes staying with it. It takes keep going. It takes you know, going through the ups and downs and feeling inspired and feeling uninspired and feel like it's happening and feel like it's not happening. and It takes going through all of that stuff and to just keep going. You know, just to keep going, just to keep one step in front of the other, just to keep going. And in every way that one can, to keep remembering to come back into the present moment and what's actually happening right here not to get invested in the stories and not to get sideswiped by the kinds of strong emotional things that come through our minds and our bodies and just to keep going. So what supports persistence is faith. And, you know, this faith is not the kind of blind faith that um, you believe because somebody tells you to believe. It's like a conviction that, you know, you've seen for yourself that when you aren't invested in your desire, there's less suffering. When you're not attached to what you're experiencing, there's less suffering. It's the, it's the, it's the faith that comes from seeing a little bit for yourself that it actually works. There's actually, it's, and so probably the word conviction is more accurate than faith. It's the conviction that there's, there's a way out of suffering. And then we can read stories about Deepama, who's such a such a luminous, radiant one. You know, so such a so beautiful. And we can see the transformation that she experienced of a life of just, you know, incredible suffering and loss. Incredible. And how with the clear seeing of that comes about through focused mind 
there's a radical shift, a radical transformation that can take place. So sometimes we can have little slivers that we can see, and then sometimes you have contact with somebody like Deepa Man, you have this big, huge, full, shining moon, you know, that's just beaming, just radiant, just everything she does, and it's an expression of the ending of suffering. There's like, that's all she eats and breathes and talks and walks and sleeps. There's nothing else that she does, you know. And she doesn't have to say anything. You get it, you know. You get it by the way she puts on her slippers, you know. So we might have our own little thin little moon that's a glimmer of light that we can see, and then we have contact with others who bring about this fullness of, oh yes, this is actually what happens when you practice. This is the possibility of the kind of transformation that can take place. So conviction supports persistence. And what supports conviction is contact with people who embody freedom and recollecting in one's own experiences, one's own um, knowing. You know the things that you know. But when you when you stop, when you remember, when you ground yourself, you don't get so spun out. You don't get so taken asunder or hijacked by the other the things that are going on. You can know that. So you can come back both to the, your own insights, your own wisdom, and you can reflect on these people that you hear about or you see or that are examples of practitioners that live without so much suffering. I think the Dalai Lama is a very impressive, extraordinarily impressive human being. I mean, to have witnessed everything that he has witnessed, you know, and to hear the stories that he's heard, you know, and to, to have his people, you know, have gone through a kind of a genocide, really. And to be as light and as loving and as joyful and as clear and as absolutely committed to not pigeonholing the Chinese. It's extraordinary, you know, just exquisite, extraordinary example. So it's it's good to kind of wash, you know, to have contact with people who inspire and who show another glimmer of moon or a brighter moon, you know, what it is to live a path and to not suffer and to be um, able to take so much joy and pleasure out of life and be so present and so available and so responsive. So there's a kind of big shining lights and then there's the little lights which is each of us, you know, in our own practice. I remember in Chithurst we had a stupa and we used to light it up with candles and walk around it. And, you know, in England, like here, you know, in the wintertime, it gets dark really early. There's not very many hours of sunlight. So when we would have it be dark out and we would light this whole path with candles and the whole stupa would be lit up with candles. And it's like there wasn't one big light. There was just a bunch of little lights. 
And the little fights was enough to clarify the path, you know. And it was a lovely feeling to join together with others and to do this, you know, so the local community would come and we would have a celebration with it. It's just very sweet. But there was not one big shining light. And sometimes we hold out for the one big light. You know, if there's the one big light, then I can do the practice. You know, if I can hang out with the completely accomplished teacher, then I can somehow get somewhere. And, you know, we have what we have to offer. And yet, at every moment, we can bring forward our own clarity of how we see things. And so in this way, you know, the communities that we practice in and the support that we have from our friends who are also interested in waking up, they can share their light and bring their light to the path. And so, you know, sometimes, like I was saying today, when we were on the rock, you know, you can just get taken up by a kind of emotional whirlwind. And then somebody just crosses the path with you who's a practitioner and just says one thing that was like, what? You know, what? Not take yourself so seriously? And it's just, it completely can turn the whole thing on its head, you know, in terms of the way that we're looking at the situation and what we're so caught up in. So persistence supported by conviction and conviction is sort of supported by contact with the right kinds of people, the right kinds of friends, the right kinds of circumstances. And so that also means that, you know, to have, to sustain our own path, we need to have a practice that works for us and to have some time that we do that. So, you know, I have a pretty simple life. You know, I meditate in the morning and I spend time in the rocks in the afternoon and I usually meditate in the evening and work on the computer and write and stuff during the day. But it's wonderful to have time where you can meditate. And when I'm on the road and I don't have a routine like that, it's like everything turns on its head. I don't have rocks that I can take in my suitcase with me and and often I'm in other people's spaces and houses and my routine is upside down. But at every moment you can stop and just be present and and at every moment you can just feel your body and at every moment you can feel your feet walking on the ground when you're walking. You know, at every moment we can feel the contact with the cup or the fork that when we're eating, when we're drinking, we can bring it into the present moment and also we can make sure that we take some time, no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, to let the whole thing kind of settle and drop. And so... Usually when I'm on the road, I make a point of making sure that I have, a, you know, a meditation practice that I do in the morning time before breakfast. And that helps me stay focused and clear and grounded. And then I go out to nature places wherever I can, whenever I can. You know, so ocean or streams or mountains or you know, wherever I can. Because for me, that's very nourishing and very supportive for me just to drop back into something that reminds me of of an awareness that pervades everything. It's not located in time and space and it's not dependent on effort. It's just there. It's just part of nature. Certainly effort is a really important thing to cultivate. And we've touched on this a few times during this 
these days together, we have to be a little bit careful because, you know, we can use examples like Deepama in a way that um, doesn't help us because her particular circumstance and conditioning was such that the kind of effort that she made was really the, you know, it's exquisite effort. But there's times where we can grab hold of the wrong end of the stick and beat ourselves with it. And so we need to be careful. We need to be careful that the effort that we are making is coming from a very relaxed place rather than from a grasping or a striving or a a kind of a punishing or a kind of a movement away from kind of our deep inner experience. And then as we have more ability to navigate that, have more ability to access that deep relaxation, have more ability to allow our body to unravel and unfold, and and we can create contexts where we can make really quite a lot of effort and have it be for a good result. And one of the interesting experiments I had with that was when I was living in the bush in Australia. I was there with a Korean nun. And the Korean the Korean are formidable with their determination. Like they make determinations to do things that they're just they, they would seem completely unimaginable, you know, to us. So she was doing a tiger practice. And I somehow felt compelled to join in. So tiger practices is that you don't lie down and you don't sleep for however long you're doing tiger practice for. So we were going to do tiger practice for, I think, a week or ten days, something like that. And, you know, I had been dealing with chronic fatigue syndrome for, I don't know, ten years or twelve years by that point. And one of the things about chronic fatigue syndrome is, is that I could get a relapse for stress, you know, any kind of stress it could trigger a relapse and not sleeping was like huge stress huge stress so I knew that if I was going to do this if I did it in the wrong way I was going to be setting myself up for relapse which could take many months to come back to the kind of place that I had before and I knew I did not want to do that but I had this kind of feeling of like, well, this just feels really compelling. I want to try, I want to try, I want to try. But I know I can't push. So if I try, I have to try without pushing. So I made a couple of kind of caveats so that if my system was crashing, I could completely bail out. But I thought, well, all right, so I've got the caveats in place. Let me see if I can try it and see if I can figure out how to do this in a way that's going to be okay for me. So I knew I couldn't push. I knew I couldn't kind of like tough my way through it. So I had to find a way to open and soften and breathe my way through it. And it was it was really um, it was a remarkable experience. A remarkable experience. Because I got more and more happy and more joyful and more clear and more light. I mean, certainly there were times that was very challenging. I was sitting so much. I was doing a lot of sitting. Somehow felt in my hips like I was giving birth to a whale or something. It just, oh, it was so painful. <laughs> but I felt light. 
and very joyful, very happy. And to my utter amazement, because there is no way that I would have been able to imagine this in my wildest dreams, the result of doing the tiger practice was is that I was symptom-free for the first time in 12 years, for like six months. And I think what had happened was is, is, is that I don't, I don't know if you've experienced that. Well, I know you've had some kinds of illnesses, but I don't know if you've experienced something like that. It's so debilitating. I mean, it's so utterly, totally, completely debilitating. There's a lot of fear associated with it. And so by doing this in this kind of a way, it was like I was challenging the fear. I was somehow, I don't know, I was somehow uprooting the fear. And somehow the fear had a piece of keeping the whole thing in place. So the weirdest thing was is that by doing the tiger practice, not only did I not have a relapse, I was totally symptom-free for the first time in, I don't know, like 12 years for a really long period of time. So this has been part of the reason why I feel like I can trust my intuition. So if you looked on a piece of paper, it would seem insane to add it up, to try and do tiger practice when you've got chronic fatigue and one of the biggest things that stresses you out, not sleeping. So when you add it up like that, it seems like this is a setup, okay? But because the conviction or the, you know, there was a sense of, of like this, something that was really intriguing or curious or, or wanting to try, but also the discernment to know that if I was going to do this, I had to do it in a way where I wasn't pushing myself. It allowed something to open up that there's, there's no logical way that you would have been able to come to that conclusion. Okay, So there are times when practice opens things up that are so beyond our ordinary thinking that it gives me faith that when my intuition is really compelled to do something, that it, it sometimes is actually the right thing to do, even if it doesn't make any sense at all, you know. And so I've had to learn to trust myself. Because my experience has shown that when I do, sometimes it has really good results and sometimes very, very surprising results. There was another thing that happened. I had been going through a really intense, difficult time. You know, I was talking about when stuff lands and sometimes, you know, you solidify around kind of like early stuff that's not healed. Well, I had been through something and it was so painful and I was in the middle of dealing with some really intense stuff and it was like my nose to the grindstone and it was relentless and I was at capacity. It was like I couldn't handle anymore. I was working as hard with as much stuff as I could manage. I couldn't handle anymore. And a friend of mine was was going to be... Um, she had a, a, a holotropic breath workshop that she was supporting a holotropic breath worker to do. So she was a meditation teacher, and she was going to um, hold the meditation space while the holotropic breath worker did the breath work with everybody on the retreat. 
And so there was a, an intuition that this would be a good thing for me to do. And the resistance that I had was like, I didn't want to do it. It was like I was up to my eyeballs and overflowing. I couldn't handle any more. You know, I couldn't do any more processing of stuff. I couldn't have any more stuff come up. I couldn't do it. So here I was going into a into a um, a holotropic breathwork shop, which is known for bringing stuff up. And I was at capacity; couldn't handle anymore. But there was still, nevertheless, the intuition to go ahead and do it anyway. And, oh my goodness, the resistance. It was like, oh, the resistance. The resistance was incredible. And once again, to my absolute surprise, something radically shifted. And so there wasn't a sense of having more to process. It was like this this huge terrain of what I was dealing with it all of a sudden went poop. It was like, gone. And again, it was like, come on. (laughs) How on earth? I would never have been able to imagine that. I would have never even been able to think that something like that was possible. You know, again, it was a setup. Possibly it could be very risky. It was like, but there was an intuition that it was a good thing to do and that I should follow through with it. So enough things have happened to me that are like that where I have had to learn to trust myself in spite of myself, you know, because there's lots of reasons or lots of times when I think this is, I shouldn't, I shouldn't trust myself with this, I shouldn't, and yet I do anyway. So the practice has a kind of way of unfolding for itself. And then after some time, and for myself, after some time, I have more ability to trust the practice and trust the intuition that comes about stuff that's needed. And so that has allowed me to make forays outside of the familiar territory of what I, my training was in to find avenues or modalities or ways of expressing or ways of being that was more able to deal with some of the stuff that the classical approaches were not able to touch in the same kind of a way. But one of the consequences of making four rays out of the classical structure was is that I have had to undergo like a very severe identity crisis of who am I? If I'm outside of the classical structure, then how do I locate myself? You know, am I really a Theravadan practitioner, or am I something else? And there, one story about that was just quite an amazing, quite an amazing, amazing story. So I had gone to I'd gone to Australia, and. I was the first time I'd been in Australia. And, you know, as much as I like the bush or like nature, the bush in Australia is very different, and they've got all kinds of different creatures and lots of poisonous things, like like the most poisonous snakes in the world were all in Australia. And they were all living in the same place I was living. You know, they were all on the, on the, in the land that I was living in. So it just took a while to get used to, you know land and how things were and you know to realize that they weren't going to jump out at me behind the bushes and the trees and, and you know that I, 
just to find some safety there. And um, not long after I got there, there was a, a walk. And the person who was guiding the walk pointed out this mountain that was in the distance and told us some stories about the mountain. It, it was a very sacred mountain for the Aboriginal people in that area and had all kinds of, of um, creation stories around around it. And, and so I, I had a feeling of, about this mountain. I wanted to go. I wanted to go to the mountain. And again, at another occasion, I had the same feeling. I wanted to go to this mountain. So I called up the person who'd led that walk, and and I said to him, you know, I have the feeling I want to go to this mountain. And, you know, his name was Matthew. Was it Matthew? I think it was Matthew. And Matthew was a white person. He wasn't an Aboriginal person, but he was very unusual. He'd spent 20 years of his life living in Australia, walking barefoot through the bush of Australia. Now... White people don't walk barefoot in Australia, okay? They just don't. It's not like soft, ferny, ferny, soft English forest. It's it's prickly. It's cold. It's cutty. It's sharp. There's spiders. There's snakes. There's you, nobody walks barefoot through the bush in Australia. But Matthew did. He did. So he knew the bush like he knew the back of his hand. You know, he felt really comfortable in the bush. And uh, so I told him about about this, and his, his his voice went really very sober. He just got very, very sober, very, very sober. And he said, do you have any idea what you're asking to do? And it's like, you know, I just want to go visit the mountain. I don't understand what's the big deal, you know. He said, this is a sacred mountain. There is no way you're going to be able to visit this mountain unless the mountain gives you permission to go. And then he started telling me stories of his own personal journey. He tried seven or eight times to get to the mountain, and, and it didn't work. Each time there was something that happened, and it didn't work. You know, he got lost, he lost the key, he couldn't find the way. I mean, there was every single situation was a different situation. One situation, he was driving there, it was a perfectly clear day. He gets closer to the mountain and it starts to cloud up. And he gets closer to the mountain and it starts to rain. And he keeps going and then it starts lashing. And he goes further and there's like stones the size of footballs that are being hurled at the car. So he stops the car, he turns around, he drives away, and like 200 feet down the road, there's no rain, you know. So, you know, he's telling me stories like this, and this is Matthew, you know, somebody who knows the bush, who know he's in tune with the land, he knows the place. So I, you know, I had this, I had this very strong, I still had this strong feeling I wanted to go to the mountain, but I needed, if I want to go to the mountain, I'm going to have to do it by the mountain's way, I can't do it my way. I have to do the mountain's way. So I thought I need to ask permission from the mountain. But how do you ask permission from the mountain? You know, I don't know as a Theravada nun how do you ask permission from the mountain. So, I, okay, so I formulated a question. So I'm walking on my walking path, up and down my walking path, and so I'm walking and walking, and I think, all right, if the mountain... I'd like to pay my respects to the mountain, and if the mountain gives me permission, please give me a sign. So I formulated the question in my mind. The exact instant of formulating this question and thinking it in my mind, 
An owl flew directly over my head, like 15 feet, and a beetle buzzed my cheek so that I could feel its wings tickling my cheek. Exactly, exactly, so exactly. And I said, this is so weird, and this is so synchronistic, I need another sign. (laughs) So the next morning I get up to do my walking meditation on my walking meditation path, and there's a sign. A wallaby had come, turned around, and had made a pattern in my walking path that was a sign. So I'm walking up and down, looking at the sign, looking at the sign, looking at the sign. And I could tell this is a sign. You know? It, it was, it, it, the name of the mountain was Yango. And it had three Ys in it and the picture of a person with a head on the top of a mountain. I said, this is a sign. Okay, I got it. And then the next day I came out onto the walking path and I saw a worm making another picture. I'm watching the worm and it's making another picture and I, for the life of me I could not I could not figure out what that picture meant. I couldn't figure it out what it meant, what it was trying to communicate. So I drew the first one in my diary and I drew the second one in my diary and then when Uncle Max came up to the land, Uncle Max was an Aboriginal elder. I told him the story about wanting to visit the mountain and I told him the story about the owl and the beetle and not believing it and needing another sign and I told him about this sign and I told him what I meant, what I understood it to mean and I showed him the picture of the other sign. He said, yeah, the first sign is indeed a sign. It's a sign. And the second one are all the obstacles that you need to go through in order for you to get there and that, and he points to one little picture, is the angel that's going to take you there when you're ready. And I said, how do I know? He said, you'll know. You'll know. You'll just know. So this began two years of preparation and work of learning how to listen to the signs of the land about things that I was supposed to do in my practice in order to get ready to go to the mountain. Now, nobody ever told me how to do this before. And this is like a radical departure from anything I ever knew about in my life as a nun. Okay? This is shamanistic stuff. This is not Theravadan stuff. You know? And yet, again, I felt intuitively like I needed to trust it and follow it. And so I started doing all kinds of things as a result of the kind of instructions that I was getting from the land. And also at that time, I was doing this uh, intensive dream work, doing the Jungian dream work. So here I am in Australia, speaking to the land, hanging out with Jungians, having contact with Aboriginals. You know, I felt like totally an affinity with the Aboriginal people. It was fabulous. You know, and I had this really strong sense of a real strong connection with the Tibetan tradition. So then I started to have a total identity crisis. Who am I? You know, who am I? It's not okay. It's totally not okay that I'm like this. It's not okay. So all of these things happened, and I ended up going up the mountain. And the mountain journey, it was, oh my goodness, it was an amazing, it was an amazing journey. For a million ways, it was an amazing journey. The way things came together, it was... Again, you would have never have been able to imagine something like that would have been possible. It was a very special journey. Very special. Then I was on this mountain with two other people, and it was like as if, on some level, we were one mind operating through three different bodies. And I'd never experienced that before. Where you have that sense of being in sync. 
in that kind of a way. So I'm coming down the mountain, and still with this question, you know, what should I do? Should I disrobe and hang out with the Jungians? Should I go hang out with the Aboriginals? Should I change traditions and become a Tibetan? Should I, you know, learn more about the shamanistic stuff? You know, what should I do? And then I was walking down the mountain, and there was just this insight, you know. All of it belongs. I don't have to do anything. It's all here. This is how I'm experiencing life. I don't need to do anything. It's all fine. So I thought, okay, this is me thinking this. I need to go talk to some of the big boys and see what they think about all of this because I'm pretty sure that they're not going to like this one bit, you know, all of this stuff. So Ajahn Sajita was teaching a retreat at IMS, and so I somehow fandangled to go and be on that retreat so I could talk to him. And, and I poured out the story about the mountain, you know, and everything that had happened. He loved it. He thought this was fabulous. Just fabulous. He thought it was wonderful. So I didn't get any sense of, you know, bad, none, from Ajahn Sajito. So I thought, well, Ajahn Sajito is a big boy, but he's not the biggest boy. I need to go speak to Ajahn Sumedho and see what he has to say, because Ajahn Sumedho is the big dude, and if he says it's okay, it's okay, but if he doesn't say it's okay, then it's not okay. So I was passing through England on the way back to Australia or whatever I was doing, and so I, again, you know, I poured it out, my heart to him, and I said, you know, this is what's, this has been my experience, this is what happened, you know, this is what I've been doing. He said, you can make a problem out of it if you want to. And he said it four times. He said, you can make a problem out of it if you want to. He said, but that is what happens when you let go of the sense of self. These are the kinds of things that you experience. You can make a problem out of it if you want to. So the sense of, well, who am I, and how do I locate myself, and where do I place myself, and what tradition do I find myself, and how does this all work, and how does it all relate, and, you know, and all of these things, you know, it's like, if I allow myself to just open up and experience the kinds of things that naturally I have a resonance to, then what does it mean about who I am, in terms of where I fit and where I belong? So a whole other element of persistence is the willingness to hang out with not knowing, to undergo these explorations, to allow the dissolution of our identity to take place, to stay with the discomfort of not knowing where we belong. That happens as a result of that. And still staying with the process of not knowing that actually there's something in this that feels right, that feels true, that feels congruent, that feels consistent, that's not harmful. There's nothing that I'm doing that is actually going against anything that the Buddha actually said. And even though it's profoundly uncomfortable because I can't locate myself in a nice tidy box with a zipper and a blue card, you know, it still feels like this is my path, you know. So, you know, one of the key tenets of the Buddhist philosophy is the subject of non-self. That, you know, there isn't any kind of fixed identity that we can, we can uh, locate or find or hang on to. And rightly so, this is a difficult concept to wrap one's mind around, and rightly so, it's counterintuitive. Because we experience ourself as a self in relationship to other selves. 
and this is the way we walk through our lives in our ordinary world. And yet there are times when we experience a dissolution of ourself or a dissolution of the way that we have located ourselves, and it is probably one of the more intensely uncomfortable experiences that I have gone through. And there have been a number of situations where I've been through something like this, and in many of them I would have resisted going there as much as I could because it's like, it's so uncomfortable not knowing who you are. You know, in this nice, tidy, conceptual box that we like to have all wrapped up, you know, about who we are. And yet there have been times when I, I, I was cornered. It was like I had to go through this. I couldn't escape. I tried. I tried it with every single ounce of fur and fang that I could muster. I couldn't escape. And, you know, the the irony is, 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 is that the practice takes us to a place of freedom in spite of ourselves. So I was fighting and resisting a disillusion experience. And the disillusion experience brought me to a level of peace and and settledness in myself that was a much greater sense of peace and settledness than I'd ever known before. So the process sometimes takes us through territory, which is really, really uncomfortable. Like, uber uncomfortable. And yet, the practice has an intelligence of its own. I haven't had to sit there and organize and figure it out. It does it itself. And so... This ability to empty out and not locate oneself then has the ability of then you can take on the shape that you need to be depending on the circumstances that you're in. You can kind of shape shift and be whatever you need to be according to whatever is going on around you. Which is not a kind of spineless amoeba kind of salamander where you're just changing color according to the circumstances you've got no spine. But it's actually an unbelievably responsive um, Ability to just do whatever is needed according to circumstances. So, over the years, and it has been years, decades, probably close to two decades, you know, this sense of questioning of how can I locate myself in the form? How do I place myself in the form? And a, and a growing sense of trusting the unfolding process. And so I absolutely appreciate the kind of strength that comes from shapes. You know, having a shape, having a form, having a context, having a tradition, having, you know, stuff that's passed down over generations, that's time-honored and tested and proven, and I totally, I trust that. But what I found was, is, is that after a certain period of time, I couldn't force myself to fit into that shape. I needed to explore and see where other resonances were allowing my mind-body system to come alive and to flourish and to and to come out from hiding. I don't think I'm finished with this exploration yet. I think I'm still very much in the middle of it. But the, the trusting of the process is a little bit stronger, more, more solid, more comfortable with it. So when we are able to see with our own practice that this is bringing good result. 
that our hearts are opening, our bodies are more relaxed, we feel more settled in our own skin, we feel more comfortable with navigating what's arising, we feel more confident. It, it gives you the confidence to trust your intuition, which is very different from trusting your desires. I think really the koan is to trust your intuition and not follow desire. That's the koan. And that as we learn to trust our intuition and not follow desire, then we are able to allow an unfolding path that then begins to support the whole of us coming into balance, into alignment, into health, into awakening. And for me, that's been my motivation. That's what I've wanted to do. I haven't only wanted to have a part of me wake up. You know, I've wanted all of it, all of me to wake up. So tonight is the last evening of the, the next night is tonight. Tomorrow is the last full day of retreat. Where? nearly full day of retreat. And some momentum has been generated, some steadiness has been generated. See if it's possible to really enjoy this next period of time we have together. Make good use of it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.